Oh, also, we booked our trip coming yeah. down in October. Yay! Hey, super pumped! I cannot wait. I am super pumped to get down there and see you again because uh, I miss Florida. I miss the weather. Yeah, it's been rainy up here and stupid. Literally, there's like three houses for sale in Mike's neighborhood, and every time he passes them, he's like, "Man, that would be a nice house for the Steins." <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't I think they're ready to buy a house like tomorrow. <laughs> so right, no, no, we are not, but not in Florida, anyways. But yeah, um, so so have you like started school? I mean, like like I mean, school as in like your work, but your work happens all year long. Correct. So I don't work in a school. I work in a one-on-one early intervention applied behavior analysis therapy clinic. So we Is that go, the full name? That's quite a Well, a, I mean, it's a mouthful. that's pretty much what we do, yeah. So to break it down, like the one-on-one is that for every therapist, there's one kid and it's early okay. intervention, so we primarily focus in kids ages 2 to 6 during our full-time hours, and then we have kids who come that are up to about 12 or 13 years old that come in the afternoons from about four to six. Um, And we focus on social skills, self-management techniques, um, kind of like that kids who are mainstreamed in school already. And then they kind of come to us for that little bit of therapy after school. Um, So our, our center is open eight to six, but most of our kids come eight to four. So that's like the early intervention part of it. So we're getting in early in the child's life um right and kind of doing that therapy so you you have all these students in there in that facility right from like pretty much all day long right i mean you know morning to night kind of thing um how many students do you have because you said you're one-to-one yeah so i think our last count is i think we're up to almost 30 and we keep basically you know, any free spot we have, we, you know, bring a kid on. So we just had fill one it, little girl. Pretty quickly. Yeah. So like we just had one little girl start and she's only coming like 10 or eight to 12 because that's mm-hmm. when we had an availability slot from that time right. because, you know, how it all works. But I mean, we constantly are interviewing. We probably do at least two to three interviews for new staffs per week. Wow. Um, Wow. Just because we're constantly growing. But right now we're running into the issue where we're running out of space. So Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because it's a pretty popular thing. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a family member uh, at our little family gathering for Labor Day. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be interviewing my friend Elle. And um, I'm really excited about it. And, you know, this is what she does. And I was telling them a little bit about what you do. And my my, uh, uh, cousin who is in the education world, in, in that field, um, she was like, she is going to have no problem finding a job. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, she is very excited about that, too. Which, it's really <laughs> interesting, though, because so this field has been around since the 60s. We're going back to like B.F. Skinner psychology days, like Pavlov with the dog. Like that's all where this field started. But because in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, the term autism or that, you know, sort of learning delays has been so taboo, it really hasn't been in the forefront of education until like the last 10 years, really. And so now a lot of school districts are actually, you know, contracting out and having a BCBA or a board certified behavior analyst, which is what I'll be, 
when I take my board test, um, sure. having them like contracted to a school district or to, you know, each school or like there might be one for the high school and middle school. And then there might be one BCBA for, you know, all the elementary schools in the district because, you know, and it's honestly, it's crazy to think too. There's so many people who don't even know that this field exists and this type of therapy and, you know, kind of help exists in the world. And that honestly, most people's insurance companies pay for it. So that's also a common misconception is like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's going to be so expensive and this and that. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go too, because like, you know, and that's the thing that I don't know yet where I want to end up because I could end up working in a school, but I really like being in a clinic setting, which is what I'm in currently, just because, you know, you have so many other resources around you with, you know, other therapists, other BCBAs, you know. Whereas when it's you're... more specialized in a clinic setting than it would be in like a school. Like you can be, I think, a little bit more, um, I don't know, zoned in on one particular student versus in a school setting where there's a lot going on in the school. Yeah. <laughs> and typically you're by yourself. Like if you're the contracted BCBA for a district, you're working by yourself. You're traveling amongst all the schools, working with all the kids, sitting in on all the IEP meetings, which is great. But then if, you know, you might say, hey, you know, I want to get a fellow colleague's opinion on, you know, a particular kid or their situation. And, you know, I haven't had experience with these type of behaviors before, like somebody else has, you know, you're kind of more limited. Whereas, you know, the other day, one of my kids started ingesting non-edible items. And we only had one other BCBA who was like, yep, I've dealt with pica before, which is, pica is like where you ingest things that are not meant to be ingested. Um, so that was really great having someone there who was experienced in that and had done interventions for that type of behavior because the rest of us had never had experience with that. So then we were able to go from there. But if I was in a school system by myself, I'd be like, uh, who do I call? Like, who do I ask? Yeah, right. What do I do here? Yeah. Awesome. Well, before we go much further, I should probably introduce you. Um, this is Ellen Gar, everybody. Uh, she is a good friend of mine, um, really a good friend of my wife, <laughs> and therefore it's, it's a good friend of mine too. Um, and um, Elle, so you live in Florida, and you you work. Um, you're working towards your BCBA, right? Technically, I'm working towards my master's of science in behavior analysis. And then when I finish my degree, I -hmm. will then have all of the supervision hours I need and then the degree that I need in order to sit for my board exam to become a board certified behavior analyst. Right. There we go. And that's BCBA. Correct. That's what... Okay. BCBA. So that's what I will be. Education world is all acronyms. So I just want to make sure I get that one right. (laughs) This field, there's literally an entire like 400 page book for like to study for the exam. That's just all acronyms. Everything has acronyms. It's ridiculous. It's it's too much. (laughs) Um, But I guess my question is, when did you really think about... um, be, like education as a career path it has like for me it was you know fourth grade fourth grade I had a great male teacher and I was like wait a second it was my first male teacher I'd ever had and I was like wait a second you're telling me I could do that and then since right and I was like 
I love it. So in fourth grade, that's when I was like, I want to be a teacher. And here I am many, many years later still doing that. Um, what was that like, you know, when, when did that hit you? So I apologize ahead of time. It's going to be a, a touch of a long-winded answer because my journey is very weird. So I, <laughs> it, it really is. And when you hear it all, you're going to be like, how did you even survive to make it here? Right. But so I went to Lycoming College, actually in Pennsylvania, because um, mm-hmm. I'm from Connecticut. So I grew up up north. And I went to Lycoming College, and I was a theater major. About my sophomore year, I had figured out, you know, I really kind of want to do theater and education. I want to be an elementary school teacher. I've always kind of been involved in that. Even in high school, I took intern classes where I worked in a kindergarten. You know, I was a nanny growing up. So I'd always been around kids. I always worked really well with kids. Um, So my sophomore year of college, I decided I'm going to do an elementary education certification program because Lycoming College didn't have the degree program for it. So I went to my advisor and was like, hey, I know I'm starting this a year late, but can I still graduate on time? And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I took a bunch of summer courses over the next couple summers, took extra class load during my normal semesters so that I could graduate on time and still be able to do my student teaching within my senior year because I knew I wanted to go to Disney to do an internship at Disney after I graduated and I didn't want to wait. So it got to be my junior, my junior year, second semester, you know, like when you're planning all your classes for the following year and I'm sitting in with my education advisor and I'm letting her know like, Hey, I have all my theater classes planned out. Here's when I'm doing my senior project for theater. So in the fall, so I can student teach in the spring. And she was like, Oh no, you're not going to graduate on time. You have to come back an extra semester. So I said, um, that's not going to work for me. Um, (laughs) And at this point, my junior year, I was literally counting down the days till the applications came out for the college program for Disney. Mm -hmm. I wanted Mm -hmm. to audition. I wanted to go through entertainment there. And that was, that was my plan. That was where I was going. So I basically dropped my ed cert and said, well, at least I had some experience, you know, working in a school because I was like an intern a couple days a week at one of the elementary schools. I had some practice in all the classes um, you know, it's something I still want to do. Taste of it. Exactly. And it was yeah. something I still really enjoyed doing and loved being a part of. Just, I wasn't ready to be a teacher right out of college yet. And I had kind of other plans. Mm-hmm. So fast forward three-ish years, I worked for Disney, did a couple internships, went full time, moved down there full time. And then I started to get really burnt out at Disney because I was overworking myself. And then was like, mm-hmm. you know what? I think I'm ready you know, to go back to school, to get a master's in education, to teach. Mm -hmm. So I applied to a bunch of different schools. I ended up getting into Quinnipiac University up in Connecticut. So I moved my whole life from Florida back up to Connecticut. And what was really interesting about Quinnipiac's program is that the school district paid my tuition. And in turn, I had to be an intern in one of the schools for the full school year which I thought was the best program I had applied to because you really can't it's really interesting. that experience. I don't, yeah, you don't hear of that too often because no. school districts, you know, are financially um, struggling. I think a lot of them anyways. Exactly. So, and, you yeah. know, I mean, one thing about Connecticut is they are pretty well known for, you know, their schools and having really good education in Connecticut, just like other states too. 
which is also why I wanted to go back there because unfortunately Florida does have a bad rap for their schools and the education system. So I wanted to be trained in one of the top states in the country so that way I had more options when I wanted to be a teacher and where I wanted to go. So I worked in an elementary school. My mentor teacher was a kindergarten teacher and basically I was a building sub. So I floated between grades K through six. I went to school Monday through Friday. You know, I subbed, I helped with teachers when they had meetings, you know, anything that they needed, I was kind of there for it. And about three weeks into the school year, I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. This is, (laughs) this is not for me, but the whole, my whole year of tuition was already paid for. So if I were to have backed out of the program in week three, I would to have, I would have had to pay back the college an entire year of tuition, which right. Unfortunately, that school is a very, very expensive school. And the only reason I could go there was because of how this program was structured. So I, you know, I found myself, we had two isolated classrooms in the school. One was a kindergarten and one was a first grade classroom um, that had students with any learning disabilities or who were diagnosed with autism, who had behavior concerns. Um, And I always found myself like when I had free time, like gravitating towards those classrooms. I worked really closely with Um, our resource teacher, which she was basically, we had two resource teachers in the school and they were basically responsible for like one was responsible for like K through four and the other one was five and six or whatever, um, helping kids who like needed extra time on tests or, you know, and just any sort of those things related to like the special education world. And I always found myself like talking with them about certain kids we had because the reason I didn't want to be a teacher was not that I didn't like helping people or like teaching children or being around right, you know right. this environment for me i didn't like being stuck in a box all day and i also found myself like in the classes i was in i would have these kids who were really really falling behind or struggling or had those you know behavior issues and i found myself wanting to focus in on them But then I remembered like, well, as a teacher, you have to worry about the other 20 kids in your class. It's not just that kid. So I was, you know, talking about those concerns with one of the resource teachers. And she's like, well, have you ever heard of this field, the ABA? And I was like, I don't even know what that means. So I, you know, went home that night and was like, what is ABA? And thankfully for Google, the first thing that popped up was definition, applied behavior analysis. Like, what is this? So I started looking into it, started like just Googling schools that had the program so I could read their website about like what you do with it, what this is. And at the end of all that research, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I say I love about the school system and lets me do exactly what, you know, the things that I don't like about the school system isn't included in that about, you know, being stuck in one classroom all day you know, not being able to single out the kids who really do need that one-on-one attention. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm sure you see this a lot, you know, in your classroom or in your school, that a lot of times, like as a classroom teacher, you can't give that one-on-one as much as some kids need. And unfortunately, those are the kids that fall behind. And that like just broke my heart, which I know it breaks every teacher's heart. But as a classroom teacher, your job is to make sure that the whole class is there. And so, right. The 30, I have my one class is 31 kids. Like I have 31 students in one class and sure I have students in there that probably could use 
someone like you, you know, and you know, I don't have, uh, you. So, um, we have, a we have some, some other support teachers that are for those students, but you know, they've got a caseload of a handful of kids, right? It's just not the same. Yeah. So then basically from there, I just applied to a bunch of schools. Like I was not even two months into this education program and I was already applying to new grad schools. So I applied to new schools. I'm currently enrolled in Simmons College in Boston and I do their online program. And with that program, again, it's a very intense program. I have to get 30 supervision hours a week um, where I have to meet with a direct, with my individual mentor directly once a week. And I have a group mentor from the school that I meet with once a week. I, it's, it's absolutely wild. I don't know how I'm making it through, but here I am once some more, one semester left. I'm so close and I cannot wait. Everybody says like, oh, are you going to go for your PhD? Absolutely not. I am done. (laughs) I am done with (laughs) school. (laughs) This is it. That's all she wrote. We're good. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that's awesome though. What that is a really, it's a long winded. I know it's a long story, but, but it's a good story because it really shows. And I think it goes to the point of you never know how you might fit into education, Exactly. you know, because there are so many different, um, facets of it. You never know how you're going to wind up getting into it. And I think it's great to hear someone that says you were in the classroom and you went, wait, this isn't for me. And then, and here you are yet back in education in a, in a different, you know, capacity, but still making a a difference and maybe arguably a bigger difference than, than others. Um, just because of the way difference, I think, you know, we right. it's it's a different difference. Yeah. Like we're all giving what every kid needs just in our Mm -hmm. own ways. You know, I think every role in the education world is so crucial and important, you know, whether it's teaching somebody how to add that one plus one equals two to, you know, this is how you treat people. This is how you be kind. This is how you're patient to, you know, what I do of teaching kids like what a pencil is or teaching them how to say, you know, can I have a cookie compared to screaming for it? Um, So I think, you know, everything that we do is so, so important. Let's, uh, I'd like to maybe dive into your role a little bit more Um, just because you, so my, um, obviously, you know, I'm just a teacher. Uh, I should say just a teacher. I don't know. Like, that's like, <laughs> I'm just a teacher, whatever. Uh, no, but what I mean is, is, uh, you have a very, like a specialty yes. in the field of education, right? You have a very zoned in specific area of that you kind of cover. Um, one of the things that I have, um, been blessed with is the, um, on the team of teachers that I teach with. So I teach social studies and science, and then there's a language arts teacher and then a math teacher. And the three of us create this little team and I've worked with them now. This is my sixth year with them and they are phenomenal people. And I love working on this team and we are, we, we gel really well together. Um, the one thing that our team does really well is we often get a lot of the students, um, in our classes that have behavior needs. Um, a lot of times, however, these are students that are maybe have some emotional disturbances, um, maybe some anger issues, actions, um, just because the way our personalities on our team kind of fit, we can handle those students pretty well. Um, so I have a little bit of experience handling some of the students that you probably would work with in my district. If you were in my district, I have a feeling that you'd be um, in my classroom working with my students um, some. But 
I am no way claiming to be an expert. None of my education has been around, you know, the special ed world. None of my education is around like the behavior support world. I mean, sure, I've gone through some professional development yeah, and some different... but that's a very different, brief overview. Of like... Very brief <laughs> overview, right. So I, I don't want to claim to anywhere to be like a specialist at all. So I might ask you some questions that sound maybe a little naive. It's no, not that no, I just... it's good. It's just that I... It, honestly, for my own benefit, I pr- could probably learn some things from you. Um, so when you say, when you call yourself a board certified, I understand that part. Mm-hmm. But then the second part is behavior an- anal- analyst, right? Yep. Right. So I'm assuming, based on the name, that you do a lot of like analyzing the student's behavior. And so what does that entail? When you have to analyze a student's behavior, is that just like a lot of observation? What is that? Yep. So you actually hit the nail right on the head. So a lot of times people think that as a behavior analyst, I'm able to diagnose your child with autism. Not at all. I'm not a doctor. I was not trained to do that. So we cannot diagnose in any way, shape or form, any disability, any learning delay, autism, none of that. Um, that's okay, all that's, done. That's good to know. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that's that. That's done by your pediatrician, typically if you're younger or by you know whoever your primary care doctor is. They're going to be the ones who go in and have been trained on those type of assessments. So then once we get a student or kid to us, we have our own realm of assessments that we do. And those are not Mm -hmm. assessments to say if you have autism or not. It's an assessment to say, okay, where are you, you know, in terms of imitation? Like if I say do this and I clap my hands, can you imitate me and also clap your hands? Because I have students who cannot do that, which to us, and it's something so wild to think about because it's everyday things that we take for granted. Like if Mm -hmm. I told, if I clap my hands in front of you and said, do this, you would do it. It's not even, you don't even have to think about doing it. But I have students who it is so unbelievably hard for them to imitate something. They just don't understand Mm -hmm. that concept. So we do assessments on that. We do assessments on verbal behavior, which again goes back to B.F. Skinner, our BFF in the field. Um, And, you know, so we do everything from tacting, which is like labeling items. So if I hold up a pen and say, what's this? They're going to be able to say, oh, that's a pen or, you know, any item or object, different interverbals, which is something is like, you know, you brush your hair or you comb your hair with a brush or Mm -hmm. um, you wash your hands with and then they fill in soap. So it's creating those associations, you know, with different items that they've right. learned how to tact. And then manding um, is going to be your requests. So I want water, I want food, um, can I have the toy, those sort of things. So we do assessments. I mean, there's a ton more to go through, but you know, so we do the assessments to see like where they are with those. We do fine motor assessments, gross motor. Um, and then from there, we go ahead and develop a behavior plan. So it's saying, you know, okay. and everything that we write in these behavior plans goes through insurance companies. So it all has to have, sure. you know, it's kind of, it's like education where you go back to your standards, like every lesson that you teach has to have, you know, a standard from Common Core etched in there of where you're pulling that from. Same with us. Like if I'm teaching um, how to stack blocks for fine motor skills. So I have little blocks in front of the kid and they have to stack them. That has a specific goal number from a specific assessment. 
so that when I write their behavior plan, I have to say, you know, they were at this level on the assessment, so we are now working on the next level in assessment, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's kind of what we do. So again, like you said, a lot of observations. Yeah, a lot of observation, a lot of assessment, different ways of assessment. Um, and and then you take that, you turn around, and you make a, this behavior plan. Um, and would the, if it, I know you work right now in kind of a clinical setting, but in um, if you were in a school district, would that all kind of be the same? Yep, it's all going to be the yep. same. So instead of the BCBA coming, like observing a client that comes to the clinic and during like their assessment day, they would probably visit a classroom a couple times a week, you know, to really to, get to, those observations. To do those observations. Yeah, right. to different, see in different okay. subjects. And right. so those assessments are different than an actual behavior assessment. So those type of assessments I just went through, those are to assess where the student's skills are at because we not only work on you know problem behaviors, but we work on skills, especially functional living skills as like a huge mm-hmm. one, teaching how to brush your teeth, wash yep. your hands, go to the bathroom, um, all things that are gonna improve that child's life and the people around them, their lives. Um, we call that socially significant in the field. <laughs> Ooh, socially yeah, right. significant. Socially significant behaviors. Like yeah. Oh, I like that. We do, we do a lot of like social emotional learning and social yep. emotional skills in my school, and but I like socially significant. I like that. So that's like one whole realm, but then there's the whole assessment of you know you have a student who's throwing chairs. Okay, well that's a problem behavior that we need to decrease or get rid of altogether, and right. so those are different types of assessments, still based in observation. But we do things, it's called ABC data collection. So you look at the antecedent variable, what happened right before the behavior. You record what the behavior actually was that occurred. And then the consequence of the behavior. So were they given attention? Were, did they have something taken away from them? You know, all of that. Um, so it's a lot of assessment that goes into before you can even start working with the student and start working on those right. behaviors or skills. Well, that's a good segue. So because, you know, I, I get the process, right? Student comes to you, you then do your analysis, your observation, your assessment, and then you're into the zone of, all right, now we have this behavior plan in place, right? We, we've written this behavior plan. It has what well, you said, you know, you call them the standards. We'll, we'll continue to call them that for lack of a better term. You have those like standards in there. You have your goals. Yep. Now what? So now is going to be when you now start you just implementing. Like, Thanks a like, lot. See you later. Yeah, everybody. right. So... <laughs> When I'm a BCBA, so when after I take my board test, at that point, then I would go ahead and develop interventions based on those goals. So, and oh, then okay. I'm going to go ahead and teach those interventions to my therapists who are working one-on-one with the client. I'm going to observe them doing it with the client. I'm going to make sure that, you know, they're following through with the entire procedure. We have, when we write procedures out and interventions out, there's a whole, you know, really intense format, kind of like your lesson plans of it has to include everything from beginning to end so that anybody can replicate it. That's like a really big thing in our field is making sure everything's clear and concise and, you know, really well thought out and written out so that anybody can do it. And then you don't have to be there in order to explain it. Um, But then, you know, making sure that your therapists are comfortable with it. They know what they're doing. They're working well with the student. And then you kind of take a step back. And then in our field, our BCBAs supervise us at least once or twice a week. And they go through and just 
They're there to observe the client, see how they're doing with the intervention. Do we need to modify something? Is it working? Is it not working? Um, and also to there for us as therapists to make sure that we're you know doing what we're doing. So my current job right now is I'm that therapist. I'm working one-on-one -on -one with the client every day. Um, and so you're looking to go that one step up correct. to the BCBA where you're kind of helping out the therapist, creating the interventions that the therapist is going to uh, follow through with. Exactly. Yep. So as that therapist, as that BCBA, you're creating those interventions. Where do you get – Is I mean, where do you get your resources from? I mean, you're not just thinking of these things off the top of your head. Like you said before, other people have dealt with this before. Is – is it from your schooling that you've gotten a lot of these ideas? Is there resources out there that other people can use? I mean, you know, because I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, well, look, I don't have L in my classroom, although dream dreams come true, <laughs> I'm sure. Just give me a um, call. <laughs> it's it's going to happen someday. But <laughs> since I don't have you in my classroom, you know, and I, I you know, we do have a um, behavior specialist for some of our students, but not, it's, I don't believe anyways, it's BCBA. Um, and... I would love to, you know, where can I get resources for this? Where do you get your ideas from? You're not just making this stuff up. No, definitely not. And that's like a huge no-no is you can't just make anything up. Everything is based on observation and research. So a lot of right. the interventions that we're coming up with are things that, you know, we've seen work with another kid, which, you know, the kind of parentheses with that, though, is not every kid's the same. So just because an intervention works with one kid doesn't mean it's going to work with a different one doesn't mean you can't and try it. And we see it. that all the time in Exactly. Right, we see that all the time in education for everything. Everything. Every teaching style, how you learn. It's right. the same yeah. exact concept. So that's one okay. way we kind of look at things. It's like, oh, we did this for this kid. It worked really well. Let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to the drawing board. Um, and then honestly, it's research. It's going on to, if you remember back to your college days when you had to write a research paper and you go on to like oh, the yeah. databases you literally yep. plug in, you know, if I have, you know, a kid who has aggression, I might type in aggression and, you know, if he has autism, type in autism and just see what comes up and just start reading. It takes a while, but it really mm -hmm. gives you an opportunity to dive into researchers who have done this before, who have had, and again, it's all going to be similar behaviors in terms of like, if I type in aggression, that could be, you know, hitting, but the kid I might have might be throwing objects or having property destruction and aggressing by kicking. Right. So it's not going to always match up perfectly, but it gives you a chance to kind of see what interventions did they try. And then there's the data right at the end of that paper that says, you know, it worked when we did this intervention. It didn't work when we used this intervention. So then you can mm -hmm. kind of go from there and then modify it to fit, you know, your resources, you know, what you have. Um, right. I'm sure you see a lot in the classroom are behavior charts or token oh, yeah. boards. So that's something that, you know, I believe in. I believe in a token board and a behavior chart. But my kind of whole thing, and I figured we'd get into this, um, is in the school world, like in classrooms, that's what's used almost always. Like if you have a kid who has a behavior problem, well, let's put them on a token board. So for those who don't know, you know, or have never seen one before, it's basically a piece of paper or chart or anything that has boxes on it and the kid can earn tokens when they are engaging in a specified behavior. So whether that's 
they've stayed in their seat for five minutes, they get a token or they haven't shouted out, you know, in 10 minutes or, you know, and obviously based on your age group, that time is going to vary. Sure. And there's, and there's so many variations of it, you know, um, that we've seen, I've seen things that are like, you know, they get, they, they get one score for the entire class period, uh, you know, and if their score is higher or lower and then they earn those points and at the end of the day they might earn a reward or something but it's basically a way to keep track of their behavior throughout the day and the student then either earns some sort of consequence whether it be a positive or negative consequence that's what that is so a token board is a reinforcement system so all that different whether they have to answer you know for my little ones if they give one correct response they get a token and then sometimes mm-hmm. we only have three tokens on the board. And when they get that, they get the toy that they've been wanting to play with for two minutes. When two minutes is up, I take the toy, we go back and do it again. Um, yeah. So that's going to be your reinforcement for them. And with reinforcement across the board, whether it's at home, in school, in a therapy center, it needs to be something that's motivating for that kid. If you're telling that kid, you know, you get extra recess time if you, you know, get a point in my class for the day. Well, that kid might have a lot of social anxiety and might actually hate recess. So are they going to work harder to get that point? No, they're not going to care because they want to avoid at all costs getting that outside recess time. So you really need to make sure that those reinforcements that you're giving students, whether it's on a token board or just in any other sort of situation, is really, you know, specific to them. It's motivating for them. Um, because mm-hmm. otherwise they're they're not going to work for it, and I've seen that so many times. Do you, as the BCBA, handle those reinforcements? As far as like, do you do you go in as the BCBA and say, we we have you know done enough observation for this student that we believe this is going to be the right reinforcement for them? So once again, my field is absolutely nuts. There's specific assessments called a preference assessment and a reinforcer assessment. So there's about seven different kinds of preference assessments. Some is like free operant. So you just kind of put some in front of the kid and see which one they go to, um, whether it's, you know, a tangible item like a toy or edible like food. Um, or you can say like, you know, recess time, like put that on a piece of paper and they can choose that and then gain access to go outside or whatever. Um, sure. Then once you have like, all right, there's one, it's called a forced choice where you put them in pairs of two. And then from there, they have to like pick one and it's all systematically laid out so that everyone's getting paired with each other. They're both placed on the right and left side. Like it's very, very specific of how it's all done. And then from there, you take your highest preferred items or reinforcers, and then you actually do the reinforcer assessment. So you bring a kid into class and say you noticed that he chose M&Ms. This kid wants Mm M&Ms. His parents don't let him have candy at home ever. He wants M&Ms. So then you take that highest reinforcer that he chose all those times and you test it out. So you say, all right, you know, Joe Schmo, if you can raise your hand every time you want to talk in class instead of shouting out at the end of my class, if you've done that all the times, you'll get five M&M. So then you see how it works. And then from there, if he was able to do it and he got those five M&Ms, great then you know those M&Ms are a high reinforcer that's going to actually work right. to reinforce that behavior and increase that behavior happening in the future. But if he chose those M&Ms and then you actually get into class and he still shout out, maybe those M&Ms are not going to work as a reinforcer. They might be a preferred item, 
but they're not going right. to be actually reinforcing to increase that behavior or decrease the behavior that you're sure. trying to work on. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of all of this discussion about these behavior charts, I noticed in your voice a little bit of like, you were like, I use them, I like them, but I heard like a big subtle like, but can I get into that? Yes, you can. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to. I love the use of token boards and behavior charts mm -hmm. if it's what's going to help the kid. Because again, not every intervention or not every teaching style is going to work for right. every single student you work with. And sometimes those behavior charts are like a last resort. We don't know what else to do or we're maybe lazy or we're busy or we don't have enough time to deal with, deal with this. So we're just going to behavior chart it and call it a day. And that's from, and so when I worked in that elementary school back in Connecticut, when I was on my internship, when I was in my ed program, that's what I saw. And pretty much every classroom had at least one kid on some sort of behavior chart, mm -hmm. but it wasn't working for half of them. So, and that's kind of like in, when I was in that moment, that's what was sparking me to really dive into this field because I was like, but if you see that it's not improving these behaviors that you're trying to work on, why right. are we using it? Right. It why are we wasting be, our time? Exactly. It has to be motivating for that child and they have mm -hmm. to understand the system as well. You can't just sure. all of a sudden introduce a token board that has five tokens on it and they have to, you know, raise their hand five times in class without calling out in order to get that reinforcement. You can't just start with that. You right. have to, you know, say they choose that M&M as that reinforcement. Sure. The first time they raise their hand instead of shouting out, you're giving them that token or sticker on that board and you're handing them one M&M. Because you yeah. have to, it's called a conditioned reinforcer. So you have to pair and condition that token board so that they understand those tokens mean something. They carry value and that they can use those tokens to then exchange it for something, um, and, you know, that they want. And I can already see, just based on you telling me this, that there's a lot of time involved with there setting is. this up properly, setting this up the right way and making this work for the student. And I got to be honest, in school districts, we don't always ha have all that time. You know, maybe in the clinical setting, we, you would, exactly. especially when you're one-to-one -one with students, you've got that time. But to give that immediate reinforcement of a behavior... You can't do when you have is, 30 kids. Is you can't do near it. near impossible. Yep. Near impossible. So what's the alternative? So, you know, let's say we go through all the analysis. We figure out that this chart either didn't work or we're not going to even try it because we know it's not going to work. What's the alternative? So, and that's where it gets really difficult because a lot of alternatives that you're going to have are going to require... A, probably a fair percentage of time and effort from that classroom mm -hmm. teacher, which again is, you know, where I found my faults of me being a teacher is, you know, you can't then leave all your other students out of the loop, like just to give that one yeah. kid that specific attention. But I mean, from there, it would be, you know, just trying to work with either, you know, whoever's at your school and you do have as resources, whether it's a behavior specialist, whether it's, you know, the yep. school psychologist or a counselor. And that might be something too, if you are a teacher and you have a student that you see that they have their potential there, you just need to figure out what to do. Go to your principal, talk to them and say, hey, here's the right. situation we've had. Here's everything that I've tried and I've done and it's not working. You know, and that's, I don't really know how it works at upper level there, but that would be something that your principal then should 
contact right. the superintendent and say, hey, can we contract a BCBA for right. a month to help with this student because it's really affecting their learning and their education and the other students in the class, they're learning. And, you know, because I wish I could say, you know, oh, if a behavior chart doesn't work, try A, B, and C. Right. But you're right. It doesn't, it's not always going to be the same for every yeah. kid. And again, like if you have a kid who they're shouting out in class to get attention, you know, and you want to decrease or get rid of that, you know, shouting out, we call it extinction, which it sounds a lot worse than it is, but that's just, you're extinguishing the behavior. You know, you know, you don't want them to shout out anymore and they're doing it for attention. You're going to ignore mm -hmm. them. You're not going to call on them. You're not going right. to give them attention because that's exactly right. why they're doing it. So sometimes that's as basic as the intervention comes. Right. It, it's just so funny because you um, mentioned like that, that strategy of just ignoring the behavior. <laughs> but you can't because every other kid it does is it. So, well, right. It is so difficult as a teacher with a classroom of 30 kids. I've had the student that you're describing. Yep. I've had the student that just calls <laughs> out constantly. And it's not – they're not malicious about it. No. They're just – that's their style. And – you know, I spoke to the behavior specialist, and behavior specialist, and she was like, "You just need to ignore it." And I'm like, "But it is driving me up a wall. <laughs> like, I just can't get a sentence out without the student just just shouting something." But, uh, but, but you're right. It when you do it, it's it's very effective. Yeah, and the, and I mean, a lot of times, again, not for every exactly. kid, but and the difficult it part, was for this like talking student. about you know attention and calling out. The difficult part with that is that in order to extinguish that behavior, it has to be ignored and they have to realize that they're not going to gain reinforcement anymore from calling out. But when you're in a classroom with 29 other children, you can't control 29 other middle schoolers' gaze. No. They're going to give that kid attention. So he's always going to be somehow getting that reinforcement. But it's it's just, it's a very big world. And I'm sorry your podcast is, you know, only <laughs> an hour-ish long because obviously right? <laughs> there's right? just so much, you know, to go into about it. I, you know, I think we keep saying is that every student is different and every intervention is different and there are billions of them. You know, like it's just, it's too much to handle. It's too, or too, not handle, but too much to kind of wrap your head around in one one sentence. Um, it's crazy. Uh, real quick, a, a question that I just thought of um, when we were talking about this, we were talking a lot, you know, you work with a, you know, younger age students um, and, and this would work pretty much through all school. Do you see these kind of strategies working with um, like adult learners? Yep. You know, um, adults that, that have gone through our education system already, but maybe still need the support. Do you, does this, like, does a BCBA, um, are there adult BCBAs out there? I mean, if yeah. that makes sense. So, I mean, basically being a BCBA, you can, you have the ability and the training to do mm -hmm. these types of assessments and writing interventions for any age group. For me, where my experience lies is with younger children. And that's where my past is where I've found my best, you know, jive. So when I graduate, I'm going to work in, you know, a younger setting because that's where my specialty lies. I don't know a lot about, you know, adult, you know, people with autism or any delays or behavior issues. Um, but from there, there's a lot of like any homes or like, um, you know, different facilities that a lot Absolutely. of, and unfortunately we see a lot of our adult, you know, autism population ends up in these sort of facilities 
they're, you know, they're very nice. They take care of them, but it's mainly because, you know, as they get older, their families can't support and take care of them in that front anymore. So they're, you know, there's still those BCBAs who work in those facilities who go to in-home. Mm -hmm. So what I do is not just restric restricted to a clinic setting or consulting to schools. Right. There's also in-home therapy that's used a lot. My specific clinic just doesn't offer in-home therapy, um, but there's a lot of clinics or you know companies who do offer in-home. So even if you have a child who's or, you know adult who's in their 20s or 30s, that's still something where a therapist or BCBA can come into your home and work on those skills. And at that point, you know, when you're working with adults who have, you know, delays in life skills or do have behavior um, concerns, you're going to be working on a lot more of those functional living skills so that they can then right. go out into the world and, you know, be a contributing member. And that's the goal of all of this. Everything that we do yeah. is to improve that child or that person's life and improve the life lives of those around them and make them so that they aren't you know, this outcast, because every single person deserves to be treated with respect and dignity. And it doesn't matter, you know, how quickly you learn something or can't learn something. And so I think that's what's, you know, often people forget about it's, you know, if you see a kid in a store who's, you know, yelling loud or rocking back and forth, like, they're not doing it to make you feel uncomfortable. That's just how their body and their mind is processing what's happening around them. Right. And I think that's something I mean, that's a whole nother topic to go into. But I think that's something that, you know, a discussion that needs to happen in the world, you know, consistently mm -hmm. is just how we're treating other people who are different than ourselves. And, you yeah. know, we see that all the time in the media and everything, but it's so true. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it's interesting, too. I think about um, in my school, um, students that have these, these behavior issues or, or emotional disturbances, and, you know, we work really hard at the school to treat them um, with respect and treat them the way we believe that they should be treated and help them in, in lots of ways. One frustrating thing sometimes for me is like when I see that we do all of this stuff, we put all of our, you know, heart and soul into this and then the student turns around, gets on the bus, goes home and at home they're not getting that from their family, from their support system there. Or they might be, or there's a lot going on. You know, every kid is, again, um, has different home lives and things, but that's just frustrating because yeah. I'm like, oh man, you know, we only have them from sometime in the morning to sometime in the afternoon and all the time that they're not with us, we, you need to have these services or, or um, the way that these students are treated, you need to have that consistently applied Correct. throughout their entire day from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep. And it's frustrating sometimes because we know that that doesn't happen. How important for your role in your clinical setting is that kind of like home connection? How important is that for you? Because that seems, and in my opinion, I'm going to yeah. guess that it's probably pretty important. Um, it's probably top 10 most important things that we deal with on a daily basis. And so one thing right. that people might not know as well um, is your insurance company, most insurance companies also pay for something called parent training. So we have parents who okay. come in and they meet with the BC, the head BCBA on their kid's case. Um, and you go through like, you know, what, how are things at home? You know, what are you guys doing when he engages in this? Um, and then we talk through the interventions that we're doing. So if we're working on, say, denied access, we're going to walk those parents through. They're going to observe us, you know, with the kid. We're going to watch them yeah. with the kid in our therapy center. 
um, because consistency is so important because just like you said about, you know, mm -hmm. how you're treating somebody and then you go home and it's not that way, the same thing. So if we're, you know, restricting access or a kid is screaming to gain access to whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And when they're with us at, you know, at our clinic, you know, we, you know, say, all right, you need to use your words. How do we ask for things? And we're teaching them that way to request and demand for things. But then they go home and all they have to do is start crying or whining and their parents give them whatever they want. Well, that's reinforcing that whining behavior. Um, so those are mainly a lot of the conversations is just making sure that I know it's hard. I know you're the ones who are mm -hmm. up with them at 2 a.m. when they're, you know, upset about something or want something and can't communicate it or whatever the case is, um, you know, because then you have to dive into the whole realm of I have a lot of students who don't vocalize, they don't speak. So it's how do you then communicate because you've gone your whole life so far by crying or yelling to communicate what you want. Um, so that's a big part of the consistency. Um, we've had our BCBAs have gone like to doctor's appointments with the parents to help in those situations. So like we had a student who had a really bad tooth infection and he was non-vocal. So he didn't talk and we, he couldn't tell us any way, but we started to notice his other behaviors started to increase and we're starting to get really, you know, for lack of a better word, bad. Right. And mom, you know, was saying at mm -hmm. home, things were getting really bad. And, you know, it was your student's way of saying something's not right. Exactly. And so in our field too, we can't really start any intervention before they've gotten medical advice. So that's not everything, but like, you know, for our student who is starting to eat, you know, crayons or things that you weren't supposed to be ingesting and he never had this issue before, our first step was you need to take him to the doctor. We need to make sure that, you know, there's not anything going on with the nutrients in his body, that there's nothing going right, on medically, right. because if there is something medical, right. no behavior plan is going to change that. It's, you, you <laughs> right, can't right. change. You can, you can do all the charts Correct. you want and nothing's <laughs> no. going to help. <laughs> um, you know, so that was something right. that we had to do. And so the BCBA in this case went to the dentist with them and, you know, walked the doctor through like, okay, like you need to show him this before you do it. You need, he can hear you. He can understand you. He's very smart, yeah, but he just can't right. talk back to you. So, you know, I think that's amazing. The types of things that you're going to do for students. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think that's incredible. Like that, that I never would have thought of that. I said, we really, you know, just try to help because again, everyone's different yeah. and every family needs different types of assistance. And at the end of the day, like we just are here to help those kids and those families in whatever way we can, whether it's moral support and just listening for a minute while they vent, you know, because right. things are hard. Mm -hmm. And when you see those families in the grocery store or at a restaurant and their kids having a meltdown you know, don't mm -hmm. look at those families with judging eyes. Like you have no idea the struggles that those families go through on a daily basis and you staring at them or whispering about them is not helping because that kid is the most amazing kid in the entire world and is capable of so much. And it's, you know, it's just, it's so sad to see sometimes, you know, cause you see yeah. how much love those children have and can be given and, mm -hmm. you know, Given the cert, given the right, exactly. you know, um, support. Exactly, exactly. Right. Um, but I do want to just end with a question. I like to try to wrap up with um, a question that just makes us think a little bit. And um, 
I think given our topic, I'm, I'd like to ask you what should teachers like in, you know, like me, right. In my role, what should we know about the students who struggle with their behavior? Like what is something that you think is like advice to us, given your field, given your background, given your experience, what should be something that we as teachers are just kind of keeping in the back of our head and remembering about these, these types of students? I think the biggest thing is just patience, which teachers already have a lot of that, which is amazing. But I think, you know, when you have a student in your class who's particularly difficult or, you know, you've tried all the methods you've done in previous years and it's not working, just be patient with yourself and with that student and just know at the end of the day, they're not behaving in a certain way, usually to be mean or vindictive. It's usually because that behavior has been reinforced so many times. Why would they give up that behavior when they've gotten what they want wanted from it? Or a lot of times, you know, some of these kids, they can't control it. There's a whole slew of other, you know, yeah. disorders and things where legitimately the child is defiant and can't control that. It's something that their brain just mm -hmm. says that they have to do. And, you know, know that you are a wonderful person and a wonderful educator, but sometimes it's okay to ask for help. Especially when you're running out of your Correct. patience. And, you know, I think it's hard <laughs> for new educators to ask for help because you don't want to seem like you can't handle it. And, you know, if it's within your first couple years teaching, you want to be like, well, my first kid, you know, who's talking back to me and I can't handle it. I don't want to look like to my principal that I'm not a good teacher and I can't stand up for myself. Right. But also as, you know, a teacher who's been working in the field for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, sometimes you might have to change your ways. And when you're in that classroom day in and day out, year after year, you're not being exposed, you know, to no one's fault. Just you're not seeing those other strategies and new things out there. So, I think my biggest advice, again, would be just to be patient with yourself and with your student and to ask for help. It's it's okay to ask for, for help. Do research. Google is a wonderful thing, you know, to see what others, because guarantee that you're not alone. Yeah. I mentioned on a um, previous episode of this podcast that I feel like teachers reinvent the wheel when we don't have to, because like you said, there's always someone out there that's dealt with a student with that is exhibiting these behaviors before and, um, uh, you know, asking for help and, and being patient with that is I think great advice. So, um, I, I agree that is solid advice to us teachers out there that have these, uh, students. Um, L thank you so much. Of course. This was so fun for me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I agree that there is way more than, um, however long this was, um, I'd be totally up to having you back sometime. I think that'd be really fun. I think that'd fun. be awesome again. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I'm sure, you know, the way you get about talking about education, which is why you started this podcast and how other people feel about things that they're passionate about. You know, we could obviously talk all day about it, but I think it's something yeah. so important. And it's such a field that, you know, is just now in the last couple of years, really starting to bleed into the education world more. And so I think it's something Definitely. that's, such a value to educators, you know, mm -hmm. everywhere to really kind of hear some of this stuff. And it might be stuff that you were doing all along, but now, you know, there's a name to it and there's more strategies out there. And 
you know, yeah. I would love to come back and talk. I'm sorry I talked so much <laughs> as it no, was. No, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It was awesome. Well, thank you so much and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks, you too.